everybody. Welcome back to the Sound Fears podcast. I'm your host, Phil Beavers. It's a good day today. We've got a great guest. Very excited for this episode. Been talking about it. Been thinking about it. Today I have my dad, Dr. Walter Beavers. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Amazing. I am humbled and privileged to be here. <laughs> so this is your first podcast ever. Right, being on a first uh, auto podcast. This is correct. Okay. Yes. How does it feel? Do you feel feel like a fancy guest? Well, I feel like the hair on my legs is standing up, but you know, <laughs> you know, that's I'm sure okay. I'll get past that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just gotta let it flow. It's just a regular conversation, and if it's bad, we can delete it. That's the best part. <laughs> I play God here. I get to do whatever. If we don't like it, it's gone. You know what I mean? Good. So. Uh, very excited to have you on the show today. Have a couple topics. You are visiting me in New York right now. I am just to hang out. We've just been. We went to American Museum of Natural History. Uh, went to the Planetarium. I pulled yeah. a little bit. If you watch Always Sunny and you know about the um, the Cool Mac or Mac's cousin episode, you'll know that they went to the Planetarium High and it was wild. I can confirm, it's pretty wild. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Now. Usually, I was expecting to hear um, Neil deGrasse Tyson talk because he's the one who I've always, you know, associated uh, ast- astronomy, almost said astrology, and that is not the same. No, astrophysics um, and like astronomy things and uh, different space stuff. I feel like everyone looks at Neil deGrasse Tyson as kind of like the person. Well, now that Stephen Hawking is gone, um, and yes. kind of everyone goes to Tyson. So, but it was Lapito Nuango who was doing the voiceover, and she just has a phenomenal voice. She does. It's really nice. Like, I, it was very soothing, and she just, like, you know, obviously an actress, but, like, you know, not all, not all actresses have great just, like, speaking voices. I'll be honest, like, Jack Nicholson, I I don't like his speak. He's very grating on the ears. But, yes. like, but that's part of the character that he brings to those parts and those yeah. roles. Well, there's a lot of actors out there, especially the younger actors who do not have voiceover abilities. Mm-hmm. And so they, they base their profession on those physical looks, mm-hmm. the visual effects that they bring to the screen. Mm-hmm. And you don't get people. I mean, one, one of the few, I think, uh, like a, uh, a Mike Myers has a great voiceover. Uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, there's several folks that are able to do voiceovers, and you don't have. You can picture them in your mind, but if you see them on a screen in another character, uh, it's it's easier for mm-hmm. you to understand and and get what they're what they're saying. Yeah, and it's also like it's an ability to emote through just the voice and not have to be physical. Yes. And like, you know, have have to rely on my facial expressions for you to know how I'm feeling. And maybe I keep my voice one way and then like I'm kind of showing you what's going on. A person, a, a Christian Bale is like that a lot I've learned. Yes. In a lot of his parts, especially the, like Psycho uh, or yeah, American Psycho um, in the Batman movies. Uh-huh. He's like he, he but also I mean, Batman is also not, a, 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 you know, egregiously expressive or anything like that. Pretty known for like being the mysterious kind of dark kind of um, you know, brooding dickhead. Right. <laughs> well, and but Christian Bale can also bring about different characters using his mm-hmm. voice. And, you know, he can bring the gravel to it. And, mm-hmm. 
and be a completely different type of person. Well, yeah, and and especially you go from movies like um, The Machinist versus like uh, uh, um, Cheney or yes. Dick or whatever that well, Vice. Vice. Vice is what it's called. Yeah. I imagine they just called it Dick in all caps like they do with Vice. <laughs> Dick. Oh, okay. I can't wait to see that Christian Bale movie. I wonder what that's about. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate that that particular movie had a little too much reality to it, but. I don't think they made it real. I feel like they didn't emphasize. I mean, I also didn't watch it all the way through. Did you watch it all the way through? I did. Do they emphasize how evil of a person Dick Cheney is? And like how devious the Afghan war and like entire, you know, just like money profit it was like the whole thing. I don't, I don't think that was the writer's intent to Mm -hmm. make that character as evil uh, or as dishonest. I think as, people perceive uh, the vice president at that time. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, for someone who had spent the last, you know, eight years head of Halliburton uh, and making just a bunch of money Mm -hmm. off of defense contractors and and things like that, and all of a sudden uh, President Bush or President-elect Bush is is trying to look for a vice presidential candidate or George Bush, who was governor at the time, mm-hmm. uh, getting the nomination and then trying to find a vice presidential candidate. And he puts Dick Cheney in charge of finding a candidate and everybody Dick Cheney brought to him, uh, Bush didn't like. And so, you know, finally he says, you know, why don't you take it? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Mr. President, I, you know, I, you know, our governor, I don't want to do that. So wait, wait. So what was the reason that he put Cheney in charge of that responsibility? Well, Cheney had a, a very deep background in Republican Party politics. You mm-hmm. know, he had been uh, on the Nixon staff uh, during the Nixon presidency and also uh, served under President Ford. Oh, wow. He's deep. Yes. Okay. I never yes. realized he was even back with. Ford. He went back down. He was not a, Man, a he Rockefeller. He must have been way Republican. older than I thought. By the time he was vice president, he was like Joe Biden's age, I guess. Yeah, he Is was he in like his s- late. He was in his mid sixties at that. Really? Point. So he so he started early then. Well, he had also served in Congress after serving on Nixon staff and mm-hmm. Ford staff. He served in Congress as a congressman from Wyoming, uh, which his daughter Liz Cheney took that seat. Uh, uh, you know, up until this last uh, election, mm-hmm. uh, she held that Cheney seat, as they call it in Wyoming. Uh, but that's hilarious. but Dick Cheney, you know, had a background and then forayed his government service into the private sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as George Bush uh, had become governor of Texas and, and elected a couple of times and decided to run for office. Uh, Dick Cheney had the political savvy of the National Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And so Bush, because uh, George H.W. Bush, mm-hmm. Papa, uh, or 43, 41 rather, um, didn't want to use his levers in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, George W. Bush wanted to be his own man. So he went out and sought Dick Cheney's advice to help him through the late primary season into the convention uh, and then to help him look for a vice presidential candidate up until the convention started. Wow. 
I see. I didn't know all of that. So that's very interesting. Well, you learned a little bit when you teach history for, for a living. So. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Especially when it's like Texas politics. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you, you also worked in the Texas House of Legislators for a I, while. I, I did. I, I worked for two different state representatives mm-hmm. uh, during my time in college. Uh, and then I worked a third legislative session uh, with the Texas student lobby. Nice. Did you have, did you hold any kind of administrative or executive positions when you were there? Or I you was kind just of- legislative aid to, to both state reps. And both of them were very independent gentlemen, uh, leaning toward the conservative side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them were not ones that were going to go out and write a bunch of legislation and try and pass. Mm-hmm. They mostly wanted to go and serve, do the committee work, look at bills, trying to improve, uh, understand process and and understand those bills that were going to come to the floor to vote on. Mm -hmm. And so it was my task to keep up with local legislation, uh, constituent uh, information Mm -hmm. uh, and desires, and then translate that into uh, how they looked at different pieces of legislation, how they voted. I sat many, many committee meetings, uh, bored to death, uh, because there were bills that we weren't interested in, but my boss was at another committee meeting and somebody had to cover this. And I, it was some busy work here and there. There were busy work here and there, but learning the process of the Texas, Texas legislature, uh, was just an incredible tool. Is it similar to other state legislators, or is Texas very different? Because Texas is a very different state than other states, even among the southern states. We yeah. are considered it. We're considered like our own thing in Texas. Well, we are also because of you know the origins of the country of the state is being a country and a nation, been the and only, then being right. annexed in by force, basically. Because America was like, we sent you out there, you're bringing it back. <laughs> and Sam Houston was like, well, I don't want to. Stephen yeah. F. Austin was like, well, I don't want to. And then they were like putting a gun to the head and being like, yeah, you're gonna. Yeah. Yeah. And and it helped too that there were people like Maribel B. Lamar, who mm-hmm. was first governor of Texas, mm-hmm. who really wanted Texas to be a state because uh, after gaining independence from Mexico, there were still concerns that the Mexicans were going to come back mm-hmm. and try and take Texas again. Yeah. Even though they, you know, Killed Santa Ana, didn't they? In San Jacinto? Oh, no, they sent him back, right? Like, humiliated? Correct. Yeah. But I, I always remember the the story I heard in history class when I was, like, in, like, seventh or eighth grade talking about San Jacinto and the capture of him where after, you know, they, they basically, for people who don't know, the Alamo happened, big loss, big moral defeat, a lot of people died, big people died. This is where Bowie died. Everyone that was died. Where, yeah. Was All where, 300. Yeah. And so the U.S. Army was basically like, nah, we're not going to just take that on the chin. So they f- basically followed them to San Jacinto and ambushed them at like 2 or 3 in the morning. Well, <clears throat> it, the, the story of the Battle of San Jacinto is interesting because uh, Santa Ana's army was camped along the banks of what is now the city of Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the Texas Independence Army... Uh, those folks had had fought them all the way from San Antonio eastward. And if you don't know the geography of Texas, that was about 250-mile venture from San Antonio uh, 
over to, to that the, east side of Houston, over to basically. the east side of Houston, um, and they were that the Independence Army wanted to surprise Santa Ana. So what they did was they hired a local girl to go and entertain Santa Ana mm-hmm. in his tent during the evening. Oh, wow. That's the story of the Yellow Rose of Texas. That was her oh, name. Oh, I never, I've always heard that. I never knew that that's where yes. that was from. That's yeah. hilarious. Well, Santa Ana was a real dickhead. He was like known for being pompous and like he never actually showed face on the battlefield and shit. Like he just. No, he, he had the power and he yeah. didn't need to go out and fight. He could stay in the back and direct folks but he was a, a military wizard yeah well i mean he definitely knew how to surround the alamo correctly and like do all those i mean they, they held off for how many years was the texas revolution like well we fought for a couple of years yeah uh and and really about a little over a year and a half i think of like from, real from the alamo up until the defeat at san jacinto mm-hmm. but i always heard and so i you know spread this story like wildfire because i think it's hilarious that santa Ana when you know, when they finally did the ambush and they basically like caught them by surprise and were just like killing people and taking prisoners, that San- Santa Ana um, disguised himself as a soldier. Yes. And one of these soldiers gave him away because they whispered El Presidente at him. Yes. And then they were like, oh, oh, that's you. Oh, bro. <laughs> Come we with know us. You. Come on. Welcome to Texas. Get over here. And they basically just like beat his ass. And then sent him back to Mexico. Did they kill all of his men and send him alone? No, they they sent prisoners back to Mexico. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you don't need to kill those guys. They're just soldiers. They were there, you know, they were trying to protect Mexican interests. I was going to say, and also, like, I'm sure they weren't exactly happy. We did invade out of nowhere, kind of for no reason. Well, that was important territory (laughs) at the time. Okay, the manifest destiny. That's right. You that's have right, to look right. at economic interest. If you're gonna, did you pay attention in economics? In <laughs> no, high school? I didn't. That's okay. why I'm in film. That's, okay. why, that's why I took this job. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, that's. I mean, but you could say that like any, obviously, any kind of colonization is not necessarily good. But I can't fix this. It's, you know, I can't do anything about that. The only thing we can do now is try and fix relations and try and help people in the way that we can. Well, it, it's all about the relationships yeah. and, and, and what you build, whether it's on a, a personal level or if you're looking at relationships within a city. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think the current mayor of New York wanted to build different relationships uh, with several communities uh, across this area. Mm-hmm. And he did because I think former Mayor de Blasio had mm-hmm. strained some relationships at the time. And, uh, you know, new era, new mayor. Yeah. And- uh-huh. yeah, well, Eric Adams has strained his relationships with a lot of the citizens of New York, though, because of the bullshit that they've started to... I mean, being a former cop, he did talk about police presence and wanting to up police presence because mm-hmm. he thought that the crime wave was getting out of hand. Right. Um, and so, I mean, like, even in my area in Bushwick, you see cops of, like, four to eight with assault rifles, the full utility, like, Batman belt kind of thing, like, dog, canine unit, like... Well, and, they- and, and, and to be honest, my area of Bushwick is... Pretty gentrified at this point. Well, but they also know what a powerful force you are in the community. And oh, they me make specifically? Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's it. They're camping out by the Beavers residence. They know I'm a revolutionary. I'm the next Che Guevara. Oh, well, 
They know this. You have the bandanas to prove it. So. <laughs> yeah, I just got to get the <laughs> stupid ass fold over green beret thing. And we can look for one while I'm here. That's so. true. Yeah, I'm sure that we could find some kind of surplus store and get one. <laughs> I could really Che out here. That's it. You know, that's speaking of Che, um, you know this, that uh, in my eighth grade year, uh, I was in a church choir that went to Cuba. We were invited by a, I don't know what family, but I know is a very influential family. Yes. To go, did they ever confirm that it was like them? It was a mission trip set up through uh, the like the Methodist church mm-hmm. uh, there in Havana. But we never did any mission work. We just went and sang for rich people at a, at, a, yeah. at a restaurant one time. Yeah. And then we sang in a church for rich people. And I'm pretty sure it was the Castro family who was there. But I can't I can't confirm. I do know that we had a tour guide who had a nine millimeter gun on him at all times. So I'm sure that wasn't a regular uh Again, they knew of your presence. Yeah. <laughs> this is fucking eighth grade revolutionaries coming through. He's got ins- <laughs> insane ideas. Uh But that was one of the, you know, a lot of people, we weren't allowed to bring things back, even like clothing or anything. Because at the time, when I was in eighth grade, that's what, 2010 or 11, something like that? That would have been uh, between Christmas and New Year's of 2011. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because in 2012, I was a freshman. Um, And we weren't allowed to bring anything back. So all of us tried to smuggle as much as we possibly could. Some people brought back cigars, which was the one of the most illegal things, like most prohibited things that they asked us not to try and bring back. Yep. Uh, some dads did, a couple of kids did for their dads who weren't allowed to go on the trip. And I'm um, still waiting for my Cuban cigars. Look, I was ta- I was not as rebellious and daring and bold back then as I am now, or even was in high school. I was still terrified. Okay. I was still scared in eighth grade to do something like that because the implications of being like not just international crime right right we're in cuba of all places as an american yeah. it wouldn't be a great look for me to try and bring shit back and i don't think anyone got caught but i ended up bringing back a che Guevara hat yeah which i kept for a long time i think i, I used to wear it so much it like tore where like the straps in the back where you like connect it and tighten and stuff mm-hmm. it tore there and i you know i think i still have it in my stuff i definitely would not have thrown it away just because it's such a crazy thing but they, you know, it, it's like in parts of Russia, in parts of um, Spain, in parts of ma- major parts of Italy, a lot of parts of Italy. Those people out there, like they, even though you're not supposed to really uh, idolize the, you know, villains or criminals or whatever, of whatever the government at the time is telling you, they still do. Like people in Italy love Mussolini still because he was great to most Italians. I mean, kind of. <laughs> well, I mean, he was they, he was a powerful voice for the people at mm-hmm. the time. And, you know, the people in Cuba still talked about being grateful for what Che did. And, and you know, Castro, Fidel, when he was still a revolutionary, before he went Gaddafi on them. Mm-hmm. Um, which is often what happens, I find. Once oil money gets involved, coming from international sources, they get a... Uh, they get pretty fascist pretty quick because well, Gaddafi was like going to be good for them. He wasn't communist, but he was like socialist or something. And he really wanted to emphasize uh, Libya's right to like their minerals and any any kind of exports they had. They didn't want foreign powers coming in and taking it and being like, well, this is ours. You made a deal. It's more of like, no, 
we'll refine it, we'll do everything, and then you can buy it from us as a finished product, not as wholesale raw material. And America was like, no, 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 buddy. You're going to give us crude oil yeah. or something like that. Well, yeah, and I go back to, and you've heard me say it a number of times, Lord Acton said power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. So when folks get a little taste of power, they love to increase that power. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, especially in countries that are struggling at, at the time, those relationships with the common man, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to go back and, and you're very well versed in, in the history of, of Adolf Hitler and mm-hmm. uh, how it was his view of the common man getting them jobs back, you know, trying to, to ingratiate himself mm-hmm. and his political thought process to the common people. Mussolini did the same thing in Italy. Uh, you know, uh, Castro did the same thing. Uh, well, it's so easy to convince these, to convince the common man when there is the government or outside forces from that are happening to the country cause them to be super poor. I mean, specifically in like the the uh, Hitler's case, mm-hmm. the Weimar Republic post World War One, Germany fucked up. They were on the wrong side, and the League of Nations was crippling them because they had right. to pay back everyone's war debt. On top of their own, on top of trying to not have a collapsing economy, which is what it became. I mean, it was one of those things of like in the peak or I guess the deepest valley of the Great Depression where you would, by the time you got from your house to the supermarket, the price of bread had like doubled. Right. And it's like, well, of course, you're going to be able to get people riled up and be like, it's the government's fault. Fuck them. Not, you know. Maybe we all backed the wrong horse on that great war. <laughs> I, and, and you never know. But it's all, you know, war's perspective and stuff. Right. So they thought that they were doing the right thing. Everyone who goes into war thinks that they're doing the right. Well, granted, the government may know that it's the wrong idea, but the people who fight and were inspired by them and by these leaders think that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Like in Vietnam, for example. There's right. proof that came out and there's people who talked who said, no, we knew going into it this was a bad idea and that it wasn't going to go well. Well, the United States knew the French, once the French pulled out of Vietnam mm-hmm. that there was a possibility that uh, the, the Chinese would want influence in, in Asia. Well, that's their next-door neighbor. Mm-hmm. And to try and placate some of the fears in Vietnam of a Chinese takeover, then, uh, you know, America sent... Uh, advisors and trainers and then soldiers to try and help shore up uh, Vietnam. And that didn't help because we really didn't fight to win. We fought to keep China from winning. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to placate. Well, yeah, it's hard to play defense. You know, you can't have an offense if all you're doing is playing defense. So, well, especially when the, you know, the country's not on your side, the Viet Cong were ruthless in the way that they oh, fought. It, it was guerrilla warfare in a way that had never been seen before because it's knowledge of the land, not even just knowledge, mastery of the land and like expertise of knowing how the terrain and the trees work and all this stuff. Then you've got time to prepare because they've got to bring all these soldiers over. So you've got mm-hmm. all this time to set up all those traps that were well known throughout the Vietnam War from the Viet Cong, like the pit with spikes covered in shit and blood. So even if you didn't get, you know, even if you got out, you didn't die. You're still... um 
you're still going to get an infection and die from it. Or, so, you know, right. there's so many different things. And then you start having, you know, because soldiers are angry, the army's angry, the U.S. is angry, they're starting to lose a lot of people. They're like, all right, let's up the cruelty. So now you're going in and clearing out villages with flamethrowers and Agent Orange. Well, and, and because just the disfiguring just, people, right? Right, and the U.S. It, you, have, you also have to understand the U.S. could not tell the friendly locals from the Viet Cong, the, the Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. and so you end up with issues of going in and destroying villages. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Malay massacre was, mm-hmm. you know, it was told to the American people that that's what happened. We thought this was a Viet Cong village. Well, no. It, again, it was the power of a sergeant uh, leading his his platoon into a village, and they were pissed off. Yeah, yeah. And so they just kill everyone and right. everything in their way. And, it, it, you know, it, it, because there's a desperation. When you are, like, you literally don't know where in the trees they are, and the whole place, like Kowloon City, is, like, covered in trees and these buildings that are super complex and like small narrow pathways and you've got all this shit going on and you have no idea what's happening you just know your friends who you have now spent months years whatever with are being killed like that like with like by shadows almost yeah and you're like you're terrible you're just you're desperate not saying it's you know justifies stuff like those massacres and torching Mm -hmm. a village but it's like i at the time, you're basically broken mentally because you're the you know, I don't you know exactly know them, but I know people who are service members now, and they're like you know, basic training is to break you down and build and you build up you up as this, into this mold of a soldier, right? Uh, and you know that's the case then. So now you've been mentally broken once, and not but but the way you've been trained is not working. Everything you've been told would work in a certain way is not going that way because they're not fighting in the same rules as the way we were. Right. Which is, you know, I'm not saying we should have expected it, but it's like, how did America win against the British? You didn't sit in a formation and walk across roads like a like a like on highways like a car, basically. Yeah. You came out of the trees and you just hacked at people with hatchets, like man-made hatchets and shit. So yeah. Well, and, and you wonder, you know, you, you talk about, you know, breaking down soldiers and then rebuilding them. You, you wonder then why we were not equipped as Americans and even as medical experts mm-hmm. to be able to deal with soldiers that came home with uh, mental instability and, mm-hmm. and depression issues and PTSD uh, yeah, we still haven't figured out what's the best method for dealing with with soldiers like that, and and I've seen it firsthand. I've had good friends whose uh, sons went to weren't in war, but were on warships, mm-hmm. and you know were you know glazed over with with rocket fire or shot at from the shoreline, and came back. Uh, with PTSD just from regular duty in, in yeah, the Navy. Yeah, not even... Not even in a, a a wartime atmosphere. And they come back and struggle with PTSD. And, and we, haven't, we haven't gotten to a point where we can figure out how to best deal with soldiers and folks that come back uh, with, with mental illness. Well, yeah, and, and the VA... Is not exactly being nice to them. 
Like you well, see so many soldiers who like, you know, got addicted to drugs while they're over there. Especially Vietnam was terrible about that. Oh, they, they sent heroin. The they time. smoked weed. They gave yeah. them meth pills so they could stay up for you know nights on end to be able to you know stay alert during duty. But you you see that kind of stuff. I mean, most people who know about World War II know about just the pure meth tablets that Nazis were given. That was on purpose, so it would fuck them up, and they would be crazy and just be vicious and like you know, completely incompassionate or whatever, un- uncompassionate, uh, probably uncompassionate. But but you know, a lot of the drug use by American soldiers, especially in Vietnam, was because they didn't want to be there. Yeah, and they were forced to be there. They were drafted. Yeah, I mean, just just think, visualize, put yourself in their shoes. If you graduate from high school on a Saturday morning and Monday morning you're shipped out to basic training because you're drafted to go, you have no choice. There were a number of American men that fled the country to avoid being drafted and became enemies of the state state because they were not allowed to come back to the United States. They knew if they came back to the U.S., they would be arrested for avoiding military service. Draft dodging, yeah. Yeah, and so now we have well, countries... Well, how come, how come Donald Trump wasn't... Hmm. Now, there were some deferments allowed. <laughs> for certain price points, well, sure. well, for certain things. If you were in college and keeping a B average, which we know the former president did, did not. not have a B average. Did not. Uh, in whichever institution of higher education mm-hmm. he attended... Um, and then, uh, there were some medical reasons that you could get deferments. That was the route, uh, he took with foot ailments. I was going to say like foot spurs or something like that. Right? Uh, yeah. Something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and those, so those were questioned. So I, you know. Well, it, and also if you were gay, if you just said you were gay, they're like, nah, we're good. Well, yeah. Cause that was a morale issue with the military and and I think that's been proven not to be the case but uh, you know it, it it goes back to if you're not like me mm-hmm. then you must be my enemy and that's the thought process of society today and you mm-hmm. and I have talked about this yeah ad nauseum you know uh the way politics works today I'm right and you're wrong mm-hmm. whether I have facts on my side yeah. or not well, and, and everyone thinks that they're an expert now. Or at least, like, I read a couple articles. I know what I'm talking about. Well, yeah. And, or they and it's stay like, at a Holiday Inn Express yeah. last night. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> like, that is a huge, huge problem right now of, of people having opinions when there's no authority to have opinions. There's no base of, you know, uh, fact or proof or evidence to have certain opinions. There's no experiential uh, 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 justification of having, you know, like of having an authority to speak on an opinion, and and so, especially when a thing when it's things like science and like medical things, well, just fact in general, uh, yeah. people have lost grasp of of facts and believing facts. You know, I go back to having grown up and watching the the evening news, mm-hmm. which was the way you gathered national news from five thirty to six o'clock right before the local news at Mm -hmm. six. And you had people like Walter Cronkite, Cronkite, uh, 
uh, Harry Reisner, uh, Tom Bro, uh, not Tom Brokaw, but uh, David Brinkley, mm-hmm. Chet Huntley, who read the news. There was no opinion injected. Here are the facts. This is what happened. This is you the record. You make your decisions about how you feel about it. And because of the invention of the 24-hour news cycle mm-hmm. uh, in, in 1980, when the 24-hour news cycle became a business, when Ted Turner created CNN, uh, they had to put news on all the time. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't profitable. So what did they do? Then they started to create shows of opinions mm-hmm. Talking heads, pundits. Talking heads, exactly. I mean, you know, the the most famous one on CNN that that became a hit was Crossfire. Oh, yeah, I remember Crossfire. And that had someone from the left and someone from the right with a guest, and they would debate. I mean, they would spend 30 minutes arguing over each other. Next on Crossfire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and that led to the rise of uh, uh, Pat Buchanan. Yeah, that's who, that's was who I was reinvented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pat Buchanan, of course, uh, had been in the Nixon administration, mm-hmm. had been in the Ford administration uh, as a very, very young and innocent uh, politico. Mm-hmm. And then uh, became, you know, made his name in uh, politics through the media. Mm-hmm. And just because he knew better than anyone else, Again, he played fast a time or two with the facts, but that led to what we see today on television with 20 different news channels, and it's according to your preference of politics. Mm -hmm. And there might be three different channels on the left that will spew whatever you want to hear from the left. Then you have those on the right who will spew whatever you want to hear from the right. And if you don't listen to both sides... How can you formulate a, an opinion based on fact? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we've seen it here in the last couple of weeks with a particular newsman on Fox who was given mm. availability to security tapes from January 6th. And Talking about he, Carlson or Hannity? Uh, Mr. Carlson. Uh, well, what's really going on? Is America being bled dry by minorities and refugees? You tell me. Yeah. Well, and that, but he cut through, there were 41,000 hours of tape mm-hmm. that he had to view. And like body cam footage, CCTV, uh, uh, all CCTV kind of like- footage from the Capitol that day, all cameras. Uh, and what did he do? He spent two days, two hours of his show showing tape of nonviolent people that had intruded into the Capitol, but they were not being violent. They were just tourists. They were very peaceful. They were, and we all know, we've all seen, we saw it live Mm -hmm. uh, as it was happening on January the 6th. That was not. What was happening? Yeah, no. No. And and there was, I mean, there was a police officer who was basically beaten to death or like trampled. There was the woman who was shot. Because they shattered the glass trying to get into the st- the Senate room, I into the House floor. into the House floor, yeah. and it and now she's a martyr for happen? that cause. Yeah. My whole thing was like, what 
you had to have assumed some people are going to die. It's this crazy thing of, I'm so, like, so tired of hearing the peaceful protests, to be honest, because peaceful protesting only works if the other side wants peace. And when Correct. they don't, and then they want to strip away rights, whether it's from voting or it's some kind of like, you know, body autonomy or even just like expressing yourself and who you are. Mm-hmm. There is no I'm not saying you should go out and just murder conservatives. That's not what I'm saying. You find the source of the problem, which comes directly from Washington, D.C. There's people writing legislation, there's people introducing and defending this legislation that ends up being passed because then their little their little buddies are all hanging out in these back rooms where no one knows what's actually being traded away. And they just are, you know, we, I just am tired. Like the the game of politics on the federal level to me, when you're basically making transactions with lives at, at stake, yeah, is gross to me. And that's why, you know, I have talked about it many times with this podcast. Anyone who knows me, I'm viciously anti-politician. Right. I hate them. I don't want to hear from them. I don't I don't even want to try and talk with them because whatever they say, I just don't. Well, our politics has gotten to a point now. It, it's not true government service. It's true self-service. Mm-hmm. And in in both sides are guilty. I mean, don't don't think that I'm I'm going from one side to another or bashing whatever. Uh, you know, we're passing what used to be a budget process with 13 appropriations bills that were you know, debated in committee, they were marked up in committee, passed by committee, all 13 bills passed by each house, by the House and by the Senate, and then sent to the president. We now do one reconciliation bill, one, Mm -hmm. and it's 2,500 pages, and it's given to voting representatives you know, five hours before they're told to vote on it. it. There's no debate. There's no review of, you know, what's the policy here? What? Why are we trying to do this? Why are we trying to do that? Well, we add more money to this, and we add more money to this. Mm-hmm. And, and because I believe that this particular uh, organization within government shouldn't exist, I'm going to zero out their budget. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's if you want to get rid of an agency— you have to shut it down. You have to shift those responsibilities somewhere. And and the body politic today is that, you know, I'm in charge. I'm going to do things my way. And if you can beat me and take control, then you get to do what you want. While also we try to sabotage you at every possible step. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's really fucking annoying to watch, honestly. Um, but, you know, I... I have one more thing that I want to I want to bring up. Okay. Um, and you are older than me, right? <laughs> sure. You have some so. way, you you have some <laughs> life experience, more life experience than I do, and I think a lot of people my age find it uh, despairing, trying to exist and trying to find, not even just necessarily find. I mean, yeah, finding happiness, which is you know part of those God given, nature given rights that many philosophers and even like you know people like adam scott uh, you know the the, Mm -hmm. um founder of american democracy or whatever talk about life liberty and pursuit of happiness i think a lot of people my age find it very difficult to um to 
enjoy nature and life in its most secular level as you know people like Nietzsche and Diogenes of just being like this is life you have to take it as what it is right and find happiness in it I you know they talk about that I think it's hard sometimes to justify optimism over pragmatism with how the state of the world is in the way that we have been raised and have become accustomed to it which is kind of just been like a um from you know from our perspective boomers just kind of like shit on the world set it on fire and then they were like you guys just like are so lazy like why aren't you doing stuff and it's like why the fuck would i i've been told by climate climate scientists i have till 2050 so like i'm gonna hang out with my friends and try and live because apparently in 2050 everything sets on fire now that yeah. being said i did read something the other day uh about the ozone layer is apparently uh, re- re- uh repairing itself which is cool but I wanted to ask you, um, with your life experience, how do you try to find a way to enjoy life as it is without feeling like you have to flip everything over and, you know, create, you know, like, I'm sure you see that it's, we're pretty nigh on a revolution here, whether it's a digital or whatever it is. People will rise up against these forces, you know, we're with the unionizing and everything that's going on against the monopolies and trusts of Amazon, Tesla, you know, these banks like Silicon Valley Bank, more like Silicon badly stank, by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But how do you see everything that's going on? And I mean, how do you try to stay okay with being alive, I guess? Wow, that's that that setup has kind of led me. Wow, <laughs> I need to write a book about this. I know it's I? a it's a it's a thing I've been thinking about. Wow, it's, it's difficult. Well, I, you know, I, I so I'll be sixty one next month. Mm-hmm. So I've seen my share of of different things. Uh, growing up, uh, in and you know, I grew up in Galveston, Texas. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived through the desegregation of public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, first grade was at an all-white school. Second grade, I went to my neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. My neighborhood uh, was a very rich, mixed-race neighborhood, uh, and therefore I was raised not to see people by color. Um, I mean, they all we all played together. We all went to each other's houses. Uh, you and I talked yesterday about uh, the uh, boat people coming in from Vietnam uh, right at the end of the Vietnam conflict and, and people coming into Texas and how they were treated, especially in Galveston, because the Vietnamese came in and became shrimpers. Well, mm-hmm. that really pissed off the shrimping community. And so they became very active in trying to be anti-Vietnamese, which was something we had seen being uh, anti-black, anti-Latino. I mean, in, anti-whatever. Anyone not who's me. not a white American. Exactly. Yeah. And so coming in at the tail end of being boomers, um, and, and boomers, I think, came out of their raising of by their parents coming out of World War II, that, you know, we're going to make the world better for our children. And we did, but we also got to a point where we were 
you've heard me rail on this before, you know, okay, you're playing little league baseball and even the last place team is going to get a trophy because you were on the team. Mm -hmm. We didn't cut anybody. Yeah. Everybody got to play. Well, there's a certain understanding to that, but there's also, there's no development of competition of trying to improve yourself, a reason to improve yourself to make your mark. Mm-hmm. So my generation grows up. We grow through all of that. Then we see uh, I, the, that generation of parents who, as they grew older, they, you know, you're, like your body starts to fall apart. Well, let's, they're going to develop this medication and that medication and as the boomers got old enough to be at a point where uh, they were not able to function in a physical sense in their relationships, well, here's a new drug. Here's Viagra. Here's yeah. all this. And now, it's all been benefiting boomers. Absolutely. And now that that generation is starting to tail off, then my generation's coming along and we're going, oh, shit. You know, we, we've been brought up. We've got to make money. We've got to plan for retirement. You know, we've raised our kids, hopefully the best way we can. But it was my generation that was the first to have two working parents Mm -hmm. because that was the only way you could afford things. Mm -hmm. And so we had to raise our children differently. Mm -hmm. And as my generation has gotten older, uh, we've seen our children raised and, and you've been through, I mean, you were born Four years before nine eleven. Before nine eleven. But I mean, four years. I I only know life after nine eleven. Yeah, I mean, because there's no memories there. So you you grow up knowing that you know um, that America has an X marked on it, mm-hmm. and that there's people that hate us. Yeah. And then we've got to make ourselves safe. Yeah. So how do you make yourself safe? Well, you start to segregate part of society because we certainly don't want those people that tried to kill us living with us. Well, if they're American citizens, they're American citizens. Mm -hmm. But we've segregated again that way. And then we continue to have these different skirmishes. You know, we go into um, Afghanistan. We go into Iraq uh, at Dick Cheney and his group. Well, there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That were never... They, they were never there. That was their reason to go in and take out a, a leader, a dictator. Now, and Saddam Hussein was a pretty bad guy. He was a pretty bad guy. But we had no reason other than we thought the people that perpetrated 9-11 came from Iraq. Well, they really didn't. They came from our friends in, in Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Yeah. Uh, and and there's just time after time we you know we we pointed that out and I'm, you've talked about it on two or three different occasions. You have to get to a point where you go, you know, I've got to be happy. Mm-hmm. I have to handle the things I can handle, and what I can't change, I don't try and change mm-hmm. because if I try and change everything. I'll never be successful. I will never feel that I've made a difference. And therefore, I'm never going to be happy. Because if I don't get this done, I I can't be happy. Well, 
that's just, that doesn't work anymore. And there are so many people out there who really work at, I've got to make myself happy. I, I'm, I'm depressed. I mean, you did a thing talking about depression on an earlier episode. Mm-hmm. Um, with, there, there's, again, there's medication for this. There's medication for that. Well, you know, damn it. Why don't you just take time and figure out what makes you happy mm-hmm. and then do it. Yeah. And, you know, is it a change in career? Is it a change in lifestyle? Is it a change in where you live or how you live or what you do? You've got to make yourself happy. You know, I, and I, I'm guilty of it myself. I put 30 years in public education. I was happy for most of that down toward the end, eh, not so much. But retiring from public education and having networked with people all along the way, I have an old friend who calls me up. Hey, I'm, I'm Dean at Houston Baptist university. And I've got this class in the master's program. Will you come teach this one class? Okay. I'll do that one. And that one class turned into two more and then it turns into a full-time job. Well, now you're the Dean of, I'm not Dean. No, no, no. no. Okay. Well, you're no, the head no. of the department for I, like I, grad for doctorate. I'm director of residential doctoral programs. Yeah. Okay. So the head of the doctoral program. Yeah. Okay. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to say that, but, but I'm also, I'm, I'm back in the classroom, which mm-hmm. I enjoy mm-hmm. and I'm working with people who want to make a difference in, in education and in how things are. And, uh, and that makes me happy, but also what makes me happy is, I'm not, you know, punching a clock. I'm not at the office 60 hours a week. I can take spring break and come up here and spend time and, and enjoy myself and still get some work done when I need to get work done. Mm-hmm. So you, you just, you have to figure out at what point do you stop taking the crap and you've got to make yourself happy mm-hmm. because you're not promised tomorrow. You've seen that all of your life. Yeah. And if you're not happy today, what makes you think you're going to be happy tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Until you just say, I I just have to do this. You just have to do this. So there's concessions along the way to like, you know, this could lead me down this path towards success, but I know I'm not going to be happy doing this. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really hard when you hear, like I heard all my life, you can do whatever you want to do. Any dream you have, go for it. You can do whatever you want to do. You're good at what. And it's like, well, you can't do whatever you want to do all the time. You can yeah. do you can do what you're good at really well. You can do things that you're not as good at, not that well. Yeah, yeah. There, I don't know. It's it's you're given a set of skills. Mm-hmm. You know, it's God given talent, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and um, you have to figure out what those skills are. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what you're really good at. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I've got good bullshit. Or a good I, I'm good at it. that. I've seen it. But I can talk to people and I can relate to people and being able to talk them into helping themselves be better. Mm-hmm. I'm good at that. You just have to figure out, you know, your, your grandmother, my mother would always say, don't put up with the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Just stop and make yourself, what makes you, what will make you happy today? If it's, a second cup of yogurt, wonderful. 
if it is a frozen margarita at the end of the day, go for it. Now, it doesn't mean you have to have four or five or six of those, mm-hmm. but make yourself happy. And sometimes you just have to open that those pathways to try and figure it out. Yeah, well said. I like that. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Not that you haven't heard that lecture ad nauseum. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I've heard it a lot. and But I, other people, I think, need to hear that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's all about relationships, too. Yeah. It, it really is. How, how do you build a relationship? Who you're in relationship with. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're with, if you're always hanging around people who are not making good decisions, how do you expect to make good decisions yourself? Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Cause it's all, you know, you are your environment that you surround yourself with. Yeah. I've always been a big proponent of that. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for talking with me today. I appreciate it, dad. Hey, not a problem. That I, I appreciate the fact that, that you have found an avenue to, uh, share your wisdom with, even at the age that you're at, mm-hmm. I don't know if you say how old you are on the year. I'm 25. Okay. <laughs> but at, at, at that age, you, you have an infinite set of wisdom mm. and you share it in a very different way. And it's, you share it in a medium, uh, like we talked about last night to where you can put those iPods in your ear and be doing something else and listening to this conversation mm-hmm. And it'll make, hopefully it'll make you stop and go, oh shit. Wow. That was profound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they may say, oh wow, that was profane. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. That's going to be a new slogan. Profound slash profound profane. <laughs> That's it. Well, that, your you know, choice. Yeah. Your choice. You decide how you want to decipher that. <laughs> well, like I said, thanks for coming on dad. I love you. I appreciate it. I love you too, son. You're, you're awesome. Thanks man. Fist bump, and you can't see that on the air. Yeah, you can't, but just know that there was one. But uh, but thanks for listening to the to this episode, guys. Uh, I hope you got some work done. If you didn't, then I hope you enjoyed listening to all the different things that we talked about. I had a little bit of history, had a little bit of politics, and had a little bit of life advice. Uh, so if you have anything else, any comments, concerns, anything you want me to talk about, you can uh, DM me at Mophead Records, M-O-P-H-E-A-D Records on Instagram. Uh, feel free to reach out to me, or you can email me Phil at bay1entertainment.com. But uh, thanks again for watching. I'll see you guys on the next one. Bye.